It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. For her book, The Fate of Food, journalist Amanda Little traveled across the globe in search of innovation. She was looking for new methods of food production. Her quest was driven by forecasts of a grim future with a hotter, more crowded planet. We are going to see radical changes in the food we eat and how we grow it in the coming decades. Because of these intensifying pressures of population and environment and climate change. Today, what are the latest inventions around food production? Can they help sustain us as global pressures escalate? Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Interest is growing around innovative foods. Burger King is selling the plant-based Impossible Burger, and TGI Fridays picked up Beyond Meat. Cargill and Tyson Foods are funding the meat company Memphis Meats, which is creating meat from animal cells, says CEO Uma Valetti. We are literally talking about taking high-quality meat cells from animals and saying, can we start thinking about evolving our food system really in a very transformative way to feed 10 billion people and beyond? Cell-based meat production is much friendlier to the planet than industrial agriculture. Valetti and environment writer Amanda Little explain how food system inventions will help us deal with increasingly unpredictable weather, less water, and more people. Little and Valetti kick off the talk with synopses of their work. Then they sit down with Susan Goldberg, editor-in-chief of National Geographic. Here's Amanda Little. Um, I spent five years investigating... um, shifts in food production around the world. Um, I uh, adventured into the mines, the machines, and the lands where people are um, working on the future of sustainable food. Uh, I traveled to 13 countries and 15 states um, from tiny cornfields in in western Kenya and small apple fields in Wisconsin to massive fish farms in Norway, computerized foodscapes in Shanghai. Um, And all of it was really kind of exploring this, what I thought was a fairly straightforward question, which is how are we going to feed uh, a hotter, more crowded world? And that one question led to so many others. Um, How can we make clean, sustainable food um, equitable and available to everyone, not just the elite? Um, Can GMOs be um, good for us and the environment? Is that that possible? Um, Can we develop a drought-proof water supply? Um, You know, can, uh, uh, most importantly, are we entering, you know, a future of um, meat grown without animals or uh, plant-based proteins? Are we moving beyond animal meat? Um, These are some of so many questions that I explored. sort of old and new approaches to food production. One, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you have robotics and vertical farms and, um, uh, you know, CRISPR and genetic modification of of crops. Um, On the other hand, you have some old ideas that are getting a lot of um, new life now, permaculture and edible insects and ancient plants and a lot of research into into both of these, um, you know, sort of realms. And what's interesting is the way that we're talking about food right now 
um, there's a real sort of divide in the discussion. On the one hand, you have the reinventors of food. You have folks like Bill Gates said, I think, in 2015, um, food is ripe for reinvention. And on the other hand, you have um, sustainable food advocates who are saying, I'd like my food de-invented. Thank you very much. Can you please get your technology out of my food? Um, and I was sort of looking at this from the sidelines going, is there a third way? Is there a way to support and elevate and expand the sort of principles of sustainable food production, make them available to more people, um, using the best technologies very prudently um, to support, again, some of these you know, traditional approaches to, um, to food production. And along the way, um, I met Uma Valetti, and we're going to get to the story of meat and how we're beginning to see really interesting convergence of um, food traditions and food technologies um, in the work that he's doing. Um, I want to say very quickly before we move on to his presentation and the discussion, this is a really critical moment where a lot of discussion around climate change, um, you know, the IPCC has said that uh, in the next, in every decade going forward, we're going to see a two to six percent decline in food production um, because of drought, heat, flooding, and you know uh, extreme weather events, invasive insects, and so on. At the same time, we're seeing a shift. You know, we're moving to 9.5, 10 billion people by, by mid-century. So this is this the central paradox of our food future: is this increase in demand and this potentially significant decrease in, in supply. Climate change, um, as a result of climate change, it's be, we're, we're beginning to see that food is a kitchen table issue, right? This is a, um, this is, climate change is becoming something we can taste. And just in the last week or so, we've heard a lot, or month or so, we've heard a lot about the farmers in the Midwest, 17 states where um, farmers have had a lot of trouble planting their corn and soy, um, we've heard about decline in olive production in Italy, avocado production in Mexico, coffee production in Ethiopia, Guatemala, and so forth, cacao. Some of our favorite crops are on the line, and we're seeing these sort of, in our midst right now, we're seeing stories of climate change told through food. Um, and I, I think it's very important. No area of food production is more, has a bigger, more significant climate impact than meat, which is why this discussion is so, so important. And rethinking meat production um, is, is a critical one. I am a meat eater. It's very hard for me. I've tried to become vegetarian and vegan um, and grew up on meat. So it's, it's, it's a struggle. And all these sort of approaches to bringing plant-based alternatives um, and, and other sort of more radical alternatives to meat um, are really relevant right now. So with that, I hand the discussion over to Uma and uh, look forward to your questions. Thank you, Susan. Uh, thank you, Amanda, for your book and dedicating a chapter in your book for the work that we're doing. My name is Uma Valeri. I'm a cardiologist by training at the Mayo Clinic and started this company about three years ago. And I want to talk to you a little more about um, the, the central paradigm that Amanda painted. We've got 7 billion people now, and we're going to 9.6 or 10 billion by 2050. And if I look at innovation in the history of humanity for the last 10,000 years, the industry that has continuously delivered with innovation is the food and agriculture community. We've always figured out how to grow more food, how to do it well, and how to actually supply to as many people as the planet Earth could take. 
And that system of innovation has always continued to embrace new methods. So innovation is not new to the food and ag community. What we're talking about here is doing more with less because we're also facing climate change. We are facing increasing trends of continuously increasing consumption of meat across the world, especially in developing countries at this point. And also the fact that the first sign of um, moving out of poverty and actually making a decent living wage is when someone goes out to a, to a store and buys meat. It's not that they're buying a car or buying a house, they're going and buying meat. And when we talk about meat, it's central to every culture in the world. 96% of the people in the world eat meat. It's a central tradition that brings people together, and it's something that is celebrated. It's deeply ingrained in us. Uh, the idea for what we're doing is really, we want to be able to do more with less. We want to be able to preserve the choice of eating meat, and we want to be able to preserve health, life, and wellness for the planet, people, and also for the ability for us to produce meat that people loved all along in various cultures in a very simple way. So fundamentally what I want to talk to you about is how are we growing meat from animal cells? So we're not talking about a meat alternative. We're not talking about plant-based proteins. We're literally talking about taking high-quality meat cells from animals and saying, can we start thinking about evolving our food system really in a very transformative way to feed 10 billion people and beyond? And if you had asked about this innovation that we're talking about three years ago, almost everybody would have said science fiction. It's been written about for many decades that you can grow food from cells directly. But there was not a company in the world that was out there saying, we want to translate this into the real world. And that's what really you know, got us started on this mission. And, and the, the, the concept behind this is essential nutrition. So if you look on your left-hand side, we start off with high-quality animal cells. So we obtain these cells from animals that are already in the food production system, livestock that are scheduled to go through processing for slaughter. We also take them from animals that don't need to be slaughtered. You just take a small biopsy and look for the cells that continue to grow. And these are cells that are in the steak that we're eating or in a chicken breast. And these are cells that continue to renew themselves because a cell is naturally programmed to divide and divide and divide. And whether it divides inside an animal or divides outside an animal, it still is doing the same thing. So what we do is we take these high-quality cells and identify the ones we think will make the cut for high-quality taste and texture and feed them with essential nutrition. It's basically the nutrients that you would expect a baby calf to eat. It's a mix of vitamins, minerals, sugars, amino acids, fatty acids, and water and oxygen. And they're all given to these cells in a clean, controlled environment. And once these cells start growing, they grow, grow, grow. And then once they touch each other, they start bonding with each other, just like inside an animal. They start forming tissues and fibers. And after growing for about three weeks or four weeks, we, we, we drain the feed away and we harvest the meat. And after that, typical production process that you handle meat the way you either grill it or you make it into a sausage or a burger or you put it on a plate and make it into sashimi or whatever a person is used to handling meat. Fundamentally, we're not changing what that experience is. But the reason we call it essential nutrition is that the only role that our cells have, their entire job in the world, is to become high-quality meat. But if they're inside an animal, it has a lot of other jobs to do. It has to run around, play, have babies, heal broken bones, have you know, hair, skin, you know, nails, and all that. So what does it mean? We don't need to use energy for all of that. The cell just becomes meat, we harvest it, and we eat it. So we simplify the whole production process in a way that is probably many magnitudes lower than what it's required to grow through an animal. But don't take my word for it. I do want to show you 
what was just science fiction three, three years ago to what do these products look like. We're a company based in Berkeley. I'm showing you beef. This is a beef meatball. And when we started the company, we were like, look, people don't know that you can produce meat like this. So we need to start talking from day one about what your company is doing. So we started bringing in reporters and from the Wall Street Journal or any other uh, uh, you know, well-reputed uh, uh, reporters and having them taste the product. And this was beef, and the, re the reaction to this was you know, incredibly crazy. It went viral, several million views in 24 hours. And we, we closed our financing run and moved out of San Francisco to the East Bay and started doing more things. We said our platform really has to be able to support multiple species. So we started saying, what's the most popular protein in the US? Chicken clearly is the most popular protein in the US. So we said, let's just do chicken. And we, we showed a demonstration of southern fried chicken in the kitchen that Julia Childs used to cook. And we're like, let's make what, what people really love in the US. And this was also with about 25 to 30 people, largest tasting of this kind at that time. Um, and we said, let's not stop there. This is a global platform, because we're talking about food and meat. And we went on and said, let's also do duck. because. If you think about duck, not, not that popular in the US, but more duck is eaten in China than the rest of the world combined. Lots of duck in France. And we wanted to show the global potential of, plat of a platform that can grow meat directly from animal cells. And I also want to quickly show you what it looks like at a raw product. Um, you may or may not guess which one is ours. But one of this is taken from a, from a, you know, a bird that's been raised and uh, processed for meat. The other one is just taking those high quality cells from that same bird and growing it out. I've shown this to butchers, I've shown this to CEOs of the largest meat companies in the world, I've shown it to chefs. It's always a 50-50, it's a guess, it's a flip of a coin. Because it is the same cells, it is meat, it looks like meat, it tastes like meat, it is, it is meat. So what we talk about is, it's important to demystify this. It's, the demystification really happens when someone tastes it. And really to set the stage for our conversation, why do we think this is going to be helpful for us as we think about the next 50 or 100 or beyond? It's because when we talk about, on the left-hand button, you talk about all the you know, climate change, greenhouse gas emissions. When we talk about methane production, methane production exclusively happens with animal agriculture. And in our production process, there is no production of methane. And methane is 34 times more potent than carbon dioxide if you look at a 100-year view. Because we don't have that, I think the chances of having the, the, the degree of greenhouse gas emissions is significantly lower. Uh, we also are building it out in a way that the production process is much shorter, three to four weeks, as opposed to maybe nine months or 24 months or 36 months, depending on the species, to grow an entire animal and take it for processing. So significantly lower use of water. And when we start thinking about inputs, right now there's 70 billion animals that are raised for feeding 7 billion people. And if you're thinking about that demand doubling to 140 billion animals to feed 9.5 billion people, Something's got to give. We already use a third of our water and land to feed animals for, 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 for meat. We can't go to two-thirds of our water and land going to that in the next 30 years. Therefore, we think about inputs. Because if it's a much more efficient process, the number of inputs we need is significantly less. The amount of transportation required to bring these inputs to where distribution happens is significantly less. And we also are very well positioned to be able to take advantage of renewable energy resources. The more efficient our energy grid becomes, the more efficient the production becomes. Because our, our, our emissions are only carbon dioxide from the plant or, or factory operations, you can also do carbon capture and take full advantage of the carbon capture technologies that are coming. So it's very well set up for the times that we're living in. Uh, and I'm going to move on and say, why is this also important from a safety perspective? But the points of contamination, that's what you're trying to reduce, the number of points where it can actually get exposed to bacteria, whether it's from the skin of an animal or guts of an animal or poor handling, we're decreasing that enormously. Um, 
when we think about consumers, of course, this is new and sometimes it could be weird. We want people to recognize and understand how the process is. So we talk about this from day one, we show the, show the product and cook it in front of people. Right now, without even majority of the people in the world not tasting it, about two-thirds of people globally are ready for cell-based meat. And once we start going out and demystifying it, we expect that number to go up significantly. Um, snapshot of investors, I think they should represent the world and the fact that many people can get behind it. We have impact investors, including Gates and Branson, but we also have economic investors or financial investors who look at the economic opportunity here of doubling meat demand and saying the economics really are important for them as well. And the last one is industry incumbents. We want to bring the existing industry along because industry and innovation can live together. This is what we call our big tent. And finally, this has to translate into regulation. Food is important. Food has to be safe. What we put on the table has to have a process that is really well verified and affirmed by the agencies. So we're working with both the FDA and the USDA, and in fact, both the heads of the agencies and the White House, as well as the meat industry. For example, this is a letter that we wrote to the Meat Institute, the largest uh, trade association in the world for meat and poultry, to the White House to say cell-based meat, conventional meat, and regenerative agriculture are all methods and the tools in the toolkit to feed the, to feed the growing populations uh, hunger for meat. Imagine the world, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now where there is safe, affordable food that is there for protein across the world in a way that is scalable, sustainable for many generations to come. And that's really what drives our team. We're a team of 40 people from 12 countries, 58% women, and scientists, engineers, chefs, um, you know, name it, uh, financiers and uh, creatives all working on just one vision of meat for everyone, everywhere, forever. Thank you very much. Okay, I have so many questions, but I want to start with a very basic question, and Amanda, I know that you tasted Memphis Meats products, and what did it taste, what did you taste, and what did it taste like, and were you scared to eat it? Well, when Uma handed me a document that required that I sign my life away before I ate the meat, um, I, I, I hesitated, but only for a minute. Um, uh, it did say this is an experimental product, and of course this is all formalities and it has to be done, but um, I uh, thought, wait a minute, this guy is a cardiologist. What you haven't heard and need to hear is the story of Uma's evolution from cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic to startup Wunderkind. Um, and it's a great story, and it's in, in the book, but, uh, but maybe you can hear a bit more from Uma about it. Anyway, I trusted him, uh, and uh, he... I did tell her that... I ate it, my kids ate it, and my kids are sitting in here somewhere. They're the first kids in the world <laughs> to eat So they're still meat. here to tell the story. All right, <laughs> they're so here to tell the story. what did you eat and what it did? So it was pan-fried duck, duck breast, okay. um, and it only had salt and pepper and a little uh, uh, oil, and, uh, and that was it. So I could taste the flavor. Um, and right as I was about to dig in, you know, angling my blade into this sort of knob of, 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 of sautéed duck breast, fresh from a bioreactor. Uma said, don't, don't cut it with a knife. Pick it up and pry it apart with your hands. See how it comes apart. And so I sort of let go of all of my etiquette, picked up this knob of meat and started pulling at it. And I saw exactly what he was describing, which is this muscle cells that we know, you know, when you eat, for example, chicken and you know how it pulls apart, this striated muscle sort of binds together and, and separates in the way that meat does. And I said, I think 
well, this is not my grandmother's vegetable burger. You know, like, this is a whole different game. And, and he said, yes, it is. It tasted, as advertised, very meaty. It tasted um, uh, a little chewy. I think I, I had to sort of put my jaw into it. I don't know a lot about duck meat. I think I've had it a few, maybe two or three times in my life, and usually covered in, like, baking sauce or whatever. But um, this... I ate every last morsel, and I think I would not have been able to tell it from duck had it been covered in sauce. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, I'm here. I did not start quacking. I did not grow. I did not grow any feathers. Um, I, uh, you know, had no trouble metabolizing it. Did not okay. affect my digestion. It was meat. All right. So it sounds like you had a very Henry VIII experience. There. <laughs> so, yeah. Uma, you were a vegetarian, if I have this right, before you decided to create this company and then you tasted some of your own meat that you had made, what was that experience like? Um, well, it is meat. If you are a well-calibrated meat eater, which I was, I grew up in a meat-loving family, I grew up eating meat, and somewhere in medical school is when I stopped eating meat for, for a variety of reasons. And part of it is I, I loved meat, but I, I really wanted to have a process that I could get behind on how meat got to the table. So that was the reason I stopped eating meat. But when I tasted the beef or the chicken or the duck, those memories come rushing back because it kind of lights up all the taste buds that you know as a human that you recognize right away as meat. And, and I think it's, it's very hard to describe it, but there is like this like night and day difference between tasting a meat alternative and tasting meat, and that's what you'll feel. Um, in fact, the duck story is funny. I have two anecdotes. One is one of our investors is Cargill, and when we were just presenting them the tasting, seven exec leadership team members came in on a plane and, and, and were listening to our story, and then they were tasting it. And after the tasting, one of them said, okay, I'm the head chef for Cargill. Uh, my name is Steven Junta, and I've tasted the best duck in the world because I've been everywhere, and this is one of the best duck in the world. So that tells you that, you know, Cargill is, is they're extremely smart. They want the right products for the consumer. They brought someone who's actually well calibrated to taste it. And the second one is there was another very uh, well-known family member from a very large meat-producing company who came in and tasted our meat with her family, and, and she said, this duck tastes better than the duck I shot yesterday. So all I can tell you is we're still in the early stage. The potential is enormous to be able to create the experiences that people love to have. So one of the things that I think is interesting is, you know, we're living in an age where people are very distrustful of science in, in many ways, right? We're having arguments about basic facts, right. whether it comes to climate change or other things. Um, and there's a lot of discussion, and you, you hit on this, Amanda, about GMOs. And I think a lot of that is really just wrong-headed fear, and science tells us that this is wrong-headed fear. But given that that is out there and that is a real thing, what makes you think that people are going to make this psychological hurdle to eat meat raised in a Petri dish? It, it's an important question, and that is the reason why we said a company like ours should never be in the stealth mode. We should come out there and talk about what we're doing, why we are doing it, how we are doing it. I think educating a consumer who already loves the product that is in front of them but recognizes that we're merely tolerating a process right now. But if there's an option to put the same product in front of them in a way that they can understand, we absolutely believe the switch will happen. And you know, it doesn't have to happen right away because there is so much demand in meat that's happening. So no one's jobs are threatened at all. For the next 50 to 100 years, we still need to have a lot of animals producing meat, but you also need more of uh, other ways of producing meat. So the first thing to do is to you know, not expect everybody to adopt this right away. 
but there is a very strong early adopter segment. And being in the Silicon Valley, almost anyone coming with a transformative or disruptive technology, they hope for 3 to 5% and maybe 10% of the people to adopt their, their technology when it comes out. That's enough. But when we're looking at consumer service globally, two-thirds in all demographics in many cultures are able to say, I want this. When you start cutting it and saying, look at millennials and Gen Zs, they're like, when can I have it? So mm -hmm. all we need is a small slice to adapt in the, in the beginning. And then the demystification happens when you or your family member or someone you know has eaten it and enjoyed it and loved it. So getting to market is our hurdle. So Amanda, let me turn that question to you. I mean, you went all over the world, all over the country, looking at how people engage with food. Do you think that this is something that people could get their heads around? So the way that I got to UMA was actually through Tyson Foods. I was reporting on Tyson Foods' investment in a whole range of meat alternatives, including Beyond Meat, and some of the brands that you've heard recently have been getting a lot of traction. Um, and uh, it stunned me that Cargill and Tyson and all these conventional meat companies were investing in what seemed to me to be a very radical, you know, sort of impossible concept. Of course, now we have Impossible Foods normalizing impossibility. Um, you've heard uh, recently that Impossible Foods, which produces the veggie burger that bleeds. Um, are you familiar with this product? Yes. So um, White Castle picked it up. Shake Shack picked it up. Now um, Burger King has picked it up. Um, five years ago when the Wall Street Journal was reporting that, um, you know, that the veggie burger that bleeds contained um, heme, which is essentially synthesized am animal blood mixed in with these other sort of plant-based ingredients, there was no sense that this was going to get mainstream adoption, right? Or certainly going to be available at your local Burger King. Um, and somehow in you know t the last two, three years, there's been a shift. Part of it is market research. I mean, when I asked Tyson, why are you investing in the disrupt, you know, these disruptive startups? And they said, we see what's happening in the auto industry, we see what's happening in tobacco, we see what's happened in, you know, uh, you know, film. Um, disruption is real and it's inevitable, especially when you look at the behavior of young consumers who are increasing purchasing power. They're much more comfortable with this. Last year in 2018, there was a 25% growth in plant-based products, the purchasing of plant-based products, which was quadruple the growth in actual meat products and the growth in meat products. Um, and I think tenfold the growth in food um, you know, brands generally. So th there's a lot of interest and excitement around alternatives. And that's part of what's motivating the, these conventional folks to go, I mean, these conventional industries to jump in. Um, I, again, thought it would be an impossibility that this would get mainstream acceptance. But as a mom of little kids and as someone who's now tasted this, it started making sense wait, this is safer, you are growing just the meat, not the animal, so you're saving a huge amount of inputs. Um, and from an you know, ethical and humanitarian perspective, it has amazing um, benefits. Um, and you know, obviously, from a, from a climate perspective, huge potential benefits. Of course, you have to address the energy inputs, the, the serum in which the cells are grown, and we can get to that. But um, the potential is extraordinary. And so... Um, yeah, I, I think that the psychological, the challenge of getting, of accepting this 
is a lot harder than the challenge of accepting what happens inside slaughterhouses. And as a mediator and someone who has reported inside slaughterhouses, um, I know it is a bit hypocritical to say that because I continue to participate in a very broken system. But the realities of what meat production is today and how significant the impacts are are much harder to accept than the realities of what goes on inside UMA's laboratory. I mean, I think a lot of people who are meat eaters, including myself, we understand that a slaughterhouse is really a difficult situation, and there's pictures and there's stories, and you know it's awful, um, but it's familiar, and right. you're used to this idea. And I think that's sort of the psychological hurdle in some ways. Uma, let me ask you, so how much of your desire to do this was based on environmental impact versus health impact versus um, sort of treating animals in a more humane way? Where did that all fall? I can tell you I certainly went through the evolution of all of those three. Environment came towards the end. When I was a kid growing up, I was 12 years old, and I was exposed to a slaughterhouse. It was a really difficult moment for me, but I continued to eat meat. Then in medical school, and as you know, exposed to much larger scale uh, slaughter in the, the Mayo Clinic, I started seeing the effects of you know, diet on us, smoking and all of that. And I put catheters in patients' hearts to look at the plaque and try to clean it out and treating patients with heart attacks and cardiac arrests. And the part that really stuck with me is I've had a number of patients who would come in cardiac arrest, will be dead on the field for 60 minutes, we resuscitate them, and all their vessels are stented. It means when we put stents in, it's metal stents. And what we call it was full metal jacket, which means every single artery in their heart was stented. And I would tell them on the way out, uh, when they give me an embrace or the family comes and says, thanks for saving my loved one's life, I'll say, please be sure that this person is not smoking and they're watching their diet. And one third of all of those would come back within a month or two and they're back on smoking and their dietary habits are gone back to where they are. So what they told me is fundamentally, even when our life is at risk, the choice of what we love to do is so important, and food is such a critical part. Someone is doing, eating three to four times a day. And when I started looking at the health and wellness opportunity in meat and being able to start saying, yes, we can have meat, enjoy it, but we can start thinking about making it better. That opportunity really got Is this really lower cholesterol or something? I mean, I, I, didn't, I read a lot before this, but I didn't come across that. So is eating this meat actually healthier, better for you than eating the meat off of some cow who's grazing in some pasture somewhere? It's, it's a question that I think we should be able to answer. You know, you can't make health claims. When you bring in food products to market, you should, FDA is very, very clear about this. And as a physician, when you talk about medicines that are coming through, you can't make health claims. But... What I want us to understand is the food production process itself, the chances of contamination are dramatically lowered. That's a low-hanging fruit. We don't have slaughter on the process. Number two, when we start thinking about the epidemic influences that we have as humans, think about the swine flu, whether it's African swine flu or avian flu. Just because we have billions of animals in confined conditions, the risk to human populations are high. We don't have that. So when you start thinking about that, it's easy to add those up. And everything else on, the, on top of that is gravy. Like, we can start thinking about low-fat products. We can start thinking about beneficial fat products. We can start thinking about low-protein, high-protein. There's a lot of things that can be done by picking the types of cells and the breeds of cells you want. So that opens up a whole pipeline in the future. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. 
It's Black History Month, and we're highlighting conversations from Aspen Ideas To Go that examine race and racism. Listen as speakers like Ibram X. Kendi, Jelani Cobb, Maria Enahosa, and Henry Louis Gates Jr. explain the roots of fraught racial politics in America and how racism shapes society. Their perspectives will help you understand how to talk productively about race. Find the podcast playlist on aspenideas.org. There's also a link in our show notes. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Susan Goldberg. You know, Amanda, I want to extend this beyond me just for a minute to lean into your research. So you were looking at everything from vertical farming with leafy greens grown, you know, in in mesh and their roots are watered with some magical mist and even 3D meals that are being created for the military. And of course, there's this. What was the most interesting thing that you came across in your research? And is it this cell-based meat or was it... 3D meals? Well, I actually was totally mesmerized by applications of artificial intelligence and robotics and crop production. Um, I don't know if I mentioned earlier that one-third of all grains grown in this country and 95% of all, you know, agricultural lands are used to produce grains. More than a third of those grains go to livestock. So there's a really important connection between what's grown on land and what then we eat um, as meat. Um, uh, but um, I, I interviewed uh, someone named Jorge Herod, who's actually also in Silicon Valley. And it, it must be said, because I saw some people nodding when, we were, when I was mentioning permaculture and edible insects and ancient plants and stuff, that there's a lot of interest in traditional food production. And I, I, it's very important to, to, to address that. Um, what, what's really exciting is when technologies can be intelligently applied to support traditional forms of food production. So this is why Jorge Harad's work was so exciting to me. He um, has a company called uh, Blue River Technology in Sunnyvale, California, and he invented the world's first robotic weeder. And what this machine can do, I saw it's maiden voyage in Arkansas uh, a year and a half ago or so, and uh, it essentially uses a, a bank of about 28 cameras that are hitched to the back of a tractor to see using com- computer vision um, the, the crops below. And it can distinguish between the crop and the weed. And it can deploy with sniper-like precision a tiny little jet of concentrated fertilizer onto this baby weed. And the baby weed cannot deal with that much fertilizer and it dies and then it goes in and, and fertilizes the soil in sort of these microbursts, right? As an alternative to broadcast spraying, which is what you see with the Cessna airplanes dumping you know, glyphosate by the billions of gallons. Um, and so I saw this machine going down 12 miles an hour down this Arkansas field, going deploying these tiny little jets of, of herbicide. It was actually a trial run, so it was this fake sort of blue-dyed water. And you see, there's the plant that we're going to eat, and there's the weed, and only the weed has gotten this jet of, of chemicals. And I'm very concerned about the amount of chemicals that are in our food supply. Um, and so that was thrilling. A, because what it means is, yes, he's starting with herbicides, because that's a really critical area. We've heard a lot about human health impacts of glyphosate um, and the massive overuse of herbicides, 
Um, B, he's beginning to uh, apply this to um, uh, you know, fungicides and insecticides, but also fertilizers. And we know what happens when you overuse fertilizers. Algae blooms, soil, you know, huge pressures on soil health. Um, what it means is plant by plant, rather than field by field farming of large-scale crops, right? So you can bring diversity and in intercropping into large-scale agriculture. This is drawing on the principles of permaculture and sustainable farming, which is advocating for diversity and integration of crops. There's a real problem when you deal with monocultures. So that's just one example of a way in which, and as Jorge said, and he grew up in Peru and working on his grandmother's, uh, grandparents' farms, um, which were very integrated, and he said, you know, robots don't have to take us away from nature, they can help us protect it. Which sounds pat, but it was very exciting to see the way that he was using this idea. And Uma said the same thing, you know, there are ways in which we can see a synergy between, you know, food production that protects the earth, that protects human health, um, that, you know, elevates and sustains these principles that we hold dear, those of us who want to have backyard farms and chicken coops and so on, um, but, you know, but also need to produce food affordably for a large number of people. Well, I want to get to the affordability thing in a second, but, you know, I like this notion of the merging of the past and the, and the future into right here, into the present. And one of the things, I read this, I read this story about, you know, how creating meat without animals wasn't necessarily a new notion and how Winston Churchill actually had written about the absurdity of growing a whole chicken if you were only going to eat a leg or a breast or, or a wing and how back in 1932, Winston Churchill is saying that someday there, the, the parts will be available separately, separate from the chicken. All right, so this is a long time before you're essentially doing essentially that what has taken so long? If this was a, no, a notion back in the 30s, why has it taken until now? Um, really good question. Winston Churchill said this in 1932, and he said in 50 years from now, we would have this, where you can just grow the parts of a chicken or a wing that you need to eat. So we are well past 50 years. I think the majority of the reasons, of course, are you know, the timing of the technology being ready to do. Um, in, in terms of understanding cells, how cells grow, there's a lot that's been learned in organ generation, regenerative medicine, that is you know, some foundational knowledge there. Now, in terms of looking at how do we like, use automation, how do you use robotics, in terms of manufacturing large amounts of product, that, those didn't exist 10, 20 years ago. We have that now. And then lastly, to understand the chemistry of food, the compositional um, influence of meat and the proteins, that technology is so cheap now. And then, and then you, if you look at you know, sequencing of a genome, started off at several billion dollars to now it's under a thousand dollars. And that's like multiple magnitudes of reduction. So it's very easy for us to quickly look at a cell type and a breed and say, this breed's genome is fantastic. This is the one we want to preserve. So we increase the diversity of cells suddenly because if you think about the number of breeds that we eat meat from right now, there's about 20 breeds of beef or cattle that are mostly the ones that are consumed. There used to be hundreds and hundreds of these breeds, but we kind of concentrated them into, you know, similar to monocrops, there's decrease in diversity. When you think about our cells, I mean, there's millions of cells we are looking at, and the ability to capture all the data and keep it in our, uh, you know, accessible format didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago. We have that now. So I think all these trends are coming together to make it possible. So I want to talk about the affordability here. I mean, with these various methods of food production, you did see all kinds of things, you know. I don't know, when I, when I go to small-scale producers of you know, locally grown produce, the price is through the roof. 
So, but I feel like I should do that and that's a good thing and I wanna support them and I wanna eat healthy. What about some of these more mass uh, ways to produce food, but perhaps in, in a way that doesn't take as much water, doesn't take soil, you know, are, what are the prices of so, that gonna be for consumers? It's so early stages. So, right, the prices are much higher for, for example, vertical farming. Um, for, you know, we, we, I kept pushing Uma, said, you've got to tell me how much my duck breast cost. <laughs> I really want well, to say gonna get, we're that gonna it get was to that in a minute. $700 right. or $300 or whatever. And, um, so I, it's important to, to, to talk about this. Um, and the, the, the rate at which the costs are coming down is staggering. So I think we really need to be thinking about, you know, that sort of the, the rate of, of adoption. And, uh, and scale and how that affects the pricing. But, um, but you know, I will say before, you know, addressing that as it relates to vertical farming, because it sounds like you're interested in that, the, the other, it was Tyson Foods that, was, that was in, got me interested in, in Memphis Meats, and it was also a permaculture farmer who, who, who grows. I'm sorry, can I interrupt you? What is permaculture? Um, so it's growing food you know, based on the rhythms of uh, natural um, ecosystems. So integrating food and animal, I mean, sort of crop and animal production, you having diverse ecosystems within the, the, the farms where the foods are grown, um, and then also integrating animals into the production of crops is crucial because animals provide fertilizer, and right now it's so separated. Um, and... Uh, and, and anyway, this was a small-scale farmer who was using managed grazing and, and rotating his crops and his animals and produced beautiful products, and he's right outside of D.C. and has had a lot of success. But he barely lives on, you know, about $35,000 a year profit um, to sustain himself and his family. He can't afford his own products. And he basically said, nor can his neighbors. And he basically said, who am I to begrudge as someone interested in sustainability, who am I to begrudge, um, you know, the development of, you know, plant-based meats and cell-based meats if they can be sustainable and good for people in the environment um, when my own products are not affordable or at Whole Foods prices or beyond? And I interviewed many um, uh, practitioners of, you know, small-scale and managed, grazed, managed grazing in Tennessee, where I live, um, and, uh, and they said the same thing. It's very hard to get our prices down, even if we're a mid-sized farm. We cannot compete with Tyson Foods. So the, the, the affordability is essential, and right now, you know, as Uma can an answer this better than I can, but as I understand it, your prices have come down from about $100,000 plus per pound to several hundred dollars per pound, right? Of, is that possibly of, true, $100,000 a pound? That would be some burger. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, if you want to come and do tastings, wow. um, imagine three years ago, like I said, this field was science fiction. That, when Winston Churchill talked about it, about 70, 80 years later, there were some scientists in, in uh, universities that have grown small amounts of meat. And in 2013, uh, there was a team in Netherlands that did it, uh, and they, it cost about $1.3 million a pound in 2013, so about a little over five years ago. When we started the company in 2016 and came out and start, showed the meatball, we lowered the cost of production to about $18,000 a pound. Before I started the company, I said, look, I think the field is going to move really fast because of a few reasons. I said, it'll probably decrease by tenfold every year. And then after about three to five years, it'll start cutting in half, cutting in half. And have and you been right? We've been, we've been ahead of that curve. Okay. So when we talk about Moore's Law, we've been ahead of Moore's Law. 
And this is because the first few years is tenfold reduction in pricing. So if you think about a million, million to 100,000 to 18,000, that's like a, you know, clearly multiple mm -hmm. fold, 100 plus fold of reduction. And from then, every zero we take off is tenfold. We've taken zeros off since then. So where are you right now? Um, I want to save that moment for a very important oh, thing on, for our company. Come on, give, give us uh, a little When we'll bit have a future it. announcement. But what we are targeting is the following. <laughs> what makes sense is this. I think if we have a product that consumer is used to buying at a price that they're willing to pay, then I'd say Memphis Miss has been successful. The, re the reality will be we'll start off with premium products. And I can already tell you we are not the most expensive meats in the world. There's other expensive meats that are grown traditionally in a very, you know, Like Kobe beef or something like that? Um, Kobe, or there's some, you know, very different types of breeds of chickens that are raised that are very expensive in France. So we're not the most expensive meats in the world, so I'm very happy to take that off our, our list of achievements. <laughs> it's also important, and the same is true for vertical farming. I mean, anytime you introduce a new product, right. so much of the expense is the actual research going into it, and, um, and the cost has come down really dramatically in, in that area, too. Um, we also have to consider the cost of the inputs, um, which are becoming higher, greater and greater for you know, conventional livestock production. Water is a great example. Water prices in California have gone up and up and up. It's much, you know, we, they had to take many, you know, much cat, cattle offline, essentially, or move the production elsewhere because the, um, there wasn't enough water or water was becoming too expensive. Same thing with, you know, corn feed and what goes into livestock production. If we begin to price carbon eventually, um, these inputs will become much, much more expensive. So the cost, as the cost of these sort of, you know, new approaches decline um, with scale, then the cost of traditional products go up. So it's just, you know, it's a long view that's kind of hard to appreciate now, but, you know, the first iPhone was, you know, a thousand X more expensive than it is today. It's just part of, you know, any sort of new area of, uh, of experimentation and innovation. No, and I think it's interesting because with your company, I would imagine that it's the startup costs that are the most expensive and it's the the costs will be so much lower to continue it, right? Because it's in a lab, well, not in a field. The, the, what we call it also is important. I, all food starts off in a lab at some point. There's food labs in Tyson and Purdue. Oh, that's right. You didn't like it when I said lab. Yes. So tell me why you it's don't. It's important because <laughs> when we're starting to talk about it, when it's in the realm of science fiction, people are talking about it in small scale. University you know, professors are working on it in labs. But when you're thinking about the way we're building our pilot plant or a commercial plant, it's going to be very large, clean production facilities, just like anything that you would want to walk through. Like, for example, if you're walking through a brewery, you're seeing very clean, you know, vats of beer breweries that are going to be there. If you're going through a food production plant, they've got a very clean process that they have to follow. And these are by regulation, so it'll be a very large, clean production facility. And the best thing that can happen is when we can have a consumer walk through and say, here's how the first cells are picked, Here's what they're fed. Here's the meat that's harvested, and you can cook it right in front of you. And all of this can happen under one roof. That doesn't happen on the current system. Does it take different cells to grow different cuts of meat? Like if I want a ribeye versus a New York strip versus a porterhouse? We have different cells, muscle cells, uh, connective okay. tissue cells, and fat cells. All of these give you the experience of meat. And then the combination of fatty acids and amino acids give you those flavors. And you're, when you're cooking, the Maillard reaction that happens lets you recognize its meat. All of these come together because of the different types of cells in there and cell types. And we look at cells from different parts of an animal to see if there is a difference. And there is some differences. Uh, but keep in mind, in an animal, we're taking an animal and deconstructing into little pieces, depending on what's on an animal. 
on, we're doing the ex exactly the opposite. We're building it from the building blocks on the other way up. So we literally don't need to ever produce chuck. All we need to produce is something that people always love to eat, like sirloin or so the highest, you know, uh, the most expensive cuts or the most difficult cuts to get in an animal because there's not that much in an animal. So a steak is a steak is a steak. Um, where you take it from, I think, has different taste profiles. And okay. we can only have those taste profiles if we need it and not even produce a profile that people don't really prefer. So interesting. All right. I don't want to be the only one asking questions. So let's open it to the audience. Hi there. Thank you all for doing this and for your work. I have two questions for Uma. I'm curious if you would speak to the difference in lab-grown milk and where that stands as an industry, and then also to the contention around the naming of lab or alternative meats and milks as meat and milk. Um, so thank you. Uh, what we're doing is cell-based meat. So we're taking cells and growing meat directly from animal cells. And when you look at it cellularly, it's identical. It's the same proteins. And what the gentleman is asking is, can you do that with milk? And there are a few companies, not as many as in, in the meat side, but there's a few companies that are saying, let's pick the key proteins in milk or dairy, because there's 80 plus proteins in there or more. Let's pick the top six or seven and see if we can directly produce those proteins uh, from like yeast or other, other types of micro, microorganisms and mix them with water and give that experience and performance of milk. Um, the difference I would say there is, here we're taking the entire cell and letting the cell do what it needs to do. The proteins that a cell produces are still all in there. The lipids are still all in there. Uh, there, I think there's a fraction of the most important proteins that are being picked for functional performance of meat, whether it's in, in the meringues or pies or so. And that may be adequate for that industry. But for a full you know, replacement of meat, uh, milk with milk, I think there's more work that needs to be done in that. Can I jump in really quickly? So the, one of the companies that's been getting a lot of attention is Perfect Day. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they are doing what they call, instead of cell-based dairy, um, flora-based dairy, because they're using yeast to pump out these um, proteins that Uma was talking about. Then they mix it with flavors. What the proteins do is they, it, it enables these dairy alternative products to cohere and sort of melt in the same way that, you know, the, the, the dairy products we're familiar with. Um, so I ate uh, flora-based ice cream, and uh, uh, it was indistinguishable from Haagen-Dazs. I mean, it really was pretty surprising. They're now doing, they're scaling very, very quickly, um, and they're actually right down the road from, uh, from Memphis Meats in Berkeley. Um, but they've partnered with uh, Archer Daniels Midland to use their fermenting tanks so they can start producing this flora-based dairy on a mass scale. Um, and they're one of many new sort of uh, players in this space of, of, you know, vegan dairy that is indistinguishable in flavor and sort of performance, if you want to call it that, from conventional dairy. Anyway, is flora-based dairy as fattening as regular dairy? <laughs> they can control the amount of fats, just as Uma can control the amount of fat that goes into the, the, the meat, um, or decide how much to put in there, so can the dairy. But, but essentially, I mean, they, they had full fat um, ice cream, chocolate chunk, actually, uh, that was, uh, I think, to give you the sense that it tastes like the real thing and there's all the sort of depth and flavor benefits of real ice cream, which is a problem when you're doing, you know, coconut and, you know, other sort of soy-based um, cream, ice creams and cheeses and so on. So much of it is just, it doesn't, it doesn't the texture is yeah. the problem. So this is why 
Perfect Day, among others, is getting a huge amount of attention right now because it, you know, it performs just like a dairy product. As a cook, I'm interested in flavor. And you were talking about isolating the cells that contribute to flavor. Once you have that recipe, is that it? Or do you have to, to redo that every time? So I think the beauty of growing meat directly from animal cells is you actually are producing the meat, the substrate that has all the built-in flavors that already come with the cells. So identifying the types of flavors that we like from the types of cells is the first step to do. Once we have that, that could be just a recipe that could live forever with those types of cells. Um, when we talk about meat alternatives, it might have to be customized for like a hot dog versus a sausage versus a burger, because each of them have unique flavor profiles that they have to mask, uh, they have to make. With us, it is the meat that is the, the, the majority of the product in there, and the only thing we might have to add in there is spices. And that's why when Amanda did the tasting, or anyone who does the tasting, we insist that we want you to taste the meat directly on the grill with a little salt and pepper and really no sauces covering it. So people experience that flavor. So if people are already asking how to cook it, I guess I forgot to ask an obvious question, which is when can they get it? Uh, so we're working now to build a pilot plant to start producing in small scales and want to be able to get it to the hands of the consumers. We're also working at the same time with the agencies. So once the regulatory clearance and the pathway is in place, we'll be able to start at least demystifying it in a much larger scale than we've been able to. We've done about several hundreds of tastings, but it's when people come to, to our, our headquarters. But, but like in a store? Um, like once the regulatory pathway is in place and they're able to say you can sell if it's, if it's there. Well, Secretary Perdue said he wants to get all of this done by end of 2019. If that is the case, we'll be in the market right after that. So, so by 2020 or that's so. Our goal. So I don't want to predict the time. I think it's we want to work with the agencies to make sure that we've gone through all the processes. But the minute the approval is in place, we want to be able to get on the market, at least in a small way, so people can experience it. Okay. It's important that there are a number of other startups competing in this place who have put dates on it. Um, uh, there's a lab-grown or cultured fish product that's a tuna, um, a tuna fish that um, they've said will be released next year, 2020 or late 2019. Um, Future Meats, which is an Israeli company also doing cell-based meats, has, has said that they're coming out with products in the next year or two. There are a number of others who have put, you know, 20, 20, 2020, 2021 sort of out there. And then I said, Uma, give me a date, give me a date. He said, I don't want to give you a date. And I said, um, well, aren't you concerned that these other guys are going to get there first since you've been at this longer? He said, no, not at all. Are you kidding? It's great that I have other, you know, competitors jumping in and proving the market and getting people comfortable with this idea. I want quality. And so anyway, I mean, there are companies coming out with dates that are in the sort of next year or two, um, but not, not these guys. I, I mean, just walking back three years, this, this field did not exist. We were the first company in the space that came and kicked it off. And so the first year, there was one company. The second year, there were two. The, the next year, there were three. And now there's 40 companies across the world in all major meat-producing countries wanting to go after this because it is a technology that people want to get behind for food safety, food security, and also there's a clear need at this point to do this. So having an ecosystem is really important. It's such a large market. We never talked about numbers. It's a $2 trillion market annually that has literally been untouched. And that market is doubling in size, in which case there's opportunity for a lot of people. It's not a winner take all. But what I expect is in the next few years, you know, I would expect our company and maybe a few more to develop the fundamental technology that becomes a platform that people can kind of hundreds of companies can start based off. My question has to do with the bigger uh, environmental impact. So clearly these cells have to eat something. 
so what do we have to produce to feed this meat and how is that, uh, can you quantify that compared with existing inputs to get meat? Yeah, I'm mean, keeping in mind because no company in this space is producing at scale. All, all of these are models, right? But what the fundamental idea is it takes a lot of calories to feed an animal to get meat out of it. Let's say a steer goes, uh, grows to 2,000 pounds. We get 600 pounds of usable meat out of it. And when you look at calories in versus calories out, it takes, depending on estimates, 34 calories of uh, uh, food that has to be fed to a, a cow to get one calorie of beef out of it. What we're looking at is a significant lowering of that as saying we can get it for three calories for one calorie of meat out is of it. Is that six. because there isn't the rest of the cow? Yeah, okay. that's a fundamental advantage, right? These cells, their only job in life is to become high quality meat. They don't have to do all the other things they have to do inside an animal, you know, they're growing inside an animal, and for the length of the life cycle of an animal. So that's why I think the, 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 the cells also have to eat to grow, but the inputs that we're looking at, and based on the estimates we have, it's 90% less inputs to get to the same amount of meat that you'd get. Yeah, yeah and it's, I, I, I just am going to repeat this, this stat. If you have a 1,000-pound steer or a 1,200-pound steer, you get less than half of that as meat. The rest of it is hooves, hide, bones, brain, etc. So you're putting so, much, so many resources into the production of an unusable products. And they do go into other products, but they're not nutritious and they're much lower value products. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it, as, as the CEO of Tyson said to me, if we can produce the meat without the animal, why wouldn't we do that? Obviously, there's a massive resource advantage. Um, the question is, of course, you know, but the key Getting thing to keep in mind is that demand is doubling. So we are raising 70 billion animals, and in the foreseeable future, you'll still have to raise it because there's still this delta of demand that is growing. And if we can come in and take a slice of that, it takes off the pressure of a production system that already is struggling to be able to be sustainable. And there are regenerative agriculture techniques that people talk about and that are free grazing cattle. That's fantastic to have, but can they feed the amount of meat that's required. And just to give you the scale of amount of meat consumed in the world, globally, 750 billion pounds of meat are consumed. In the US, it's about 200 plus billion pounds of meat every year. And for companies to scale and produce this much, there's a lot, for, lot of you know, tools in the toolkit that we need. We need conventional agriculture, regenerative agriculture, cell-based meat, we need plant-based proteins to be able to feed this growing demand for protein. Your question is important because one thing that is super controversial about this is the serum in which the meat is grown. And this solution, essentially, which, is, which originally was bovine serum, right? right? And this came from the serum that was feeding the cells came from um, an animal. So that's not a vegan source of nutrient for this ostensibly vegan meat, right? Um, and that caused a lot of concern and confusion. And so there's a big race now to produce vegan serum, essentially, that can grow the cells. And that it's important to address that because I Actually, think... It's, it's important to get the nomenclature right. I want to be very clear with people. What we're producing, cell-based meat, is not vegan because it has oh, animal cells. Meat. It is right. meat, right? So it's not a vegan product, but it is meat. The reason people are trying to get away from serum is the following. You cannot scale to the degree of production you want if you're always depending on an animal product that has to help grow. Therefore, being able to get ingredients that are similar to like, you know, amino acids that are coming from plants as opposed to an animal is the most important reason why for this company and the industry to scale, we need to detach ourselves from serum that comes from an animal because then it becomes dependent on another industry and can't really go to where it can go. 
I just want to thank our panel. This is obviously a topic of great interest and such a fascinating, such a fascinating explanation. And uh, bon appetit, everybody. Thank you. Amanda Little is an environment and science writer. She's a professor of investigative journalism at Vanderbilt University and the author of The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World. Uma Valetti is CEO and co-founder of Memphis Meats. He's also a cardiologist. Susan Goldberg is editor-in-chief of National Geographic and editorial director of National Geographic Partners. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.